Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter nine. We started off looking at the fundamental proposition that was really rooted in the apostles. I want to call it humble approach to establish his authority, a humble approach to establish his authority. That's point number one in your outline. We should have a PowerPoint. Pull that frame up. I want to look at the title and just kind of talk it through a little bit. Again, arguing the or asserting the sub points before we get into the second main point. You prove my apostleship. You prove my apostleship. This would be Paul's theses. It would be his his uh, set of presuppositions for why he's in the position that he's in. And it would be an argument that he is claiming that justifies his rights, justifies his privileges and justifies his claims. I'm going to build a bridge between the objective sort of the theological and theoretical concept of apostleship from which you and I are kind of far removed to something much more proximal and relevant. And that is a father, son, or a parent child relationship. This is what I did on Tuesday. I want to do it now because it's not far from the truth. We learned in first Corinthians chapter four, verse 14 and 15, Paul admitted that he was the instrumental means of begetting the church at Corinth. God used him to birth that church. So he had a real, genuine, exclusive patir role, fatherly role, patria role in the life of that church. That means he was their spiritual father. It's a verse that affirms a lot of things. Look at verse 15. He warned them, verse 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, instructors, there are teachers. Now, a teacher is a subject object relationship dynamic. And a parent can be a teacher. And a parent should be a teacher. But a teacher is not a parent. So those are not mutually reciprocating uh, sort of uh, entities. One can be the other, but the other can't be the one. A parent can be a teacher, but a teacher is not a parent. If a parent is just a teacher in relationship to a child, a parent is failing to occupy their position as a parent thoroughly. Does that make some sense? Right. It would be wrong for a parent to not be a teacher, because the parent has to actually educate the child all the way up unto fundamental adulthood qualities. That's the whole role of parenting. Take a child and mature them to independence. That's really what Paul is doing with the church at Corinth. You would agree with me on that. We've been working with that from the beginning. And what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, you can pull that up as we build into our second main point, <clears throat> is that I could not actually talk to you in the maturity of believers who have come of age because you are still children and have need of milk and not of me. He says you are carnal even as babes in Christ. And if we were to take that analogy, here's what we would come to understand out of it. Because of their lack of spiritual maturity, Paul is limited in the broad expression of truth that he would want to share with them to bring them into maturity. They're limited by their lack, excuse me, they're limited by their lack of maturity 
for being able to enjoy the apostle as deeply and broadly as they could enjoy him. And this is really a sort of a, a, a pattern that we, we often see. And so here in this situation, we can ask the question, you know, and Paul actually raised the question. He said, what did I do? Uh, am I at fault? We're, we're going to see that as we get into the second point. Did I, did I defraud you because I did not exercise all of my authorial role in your life? And, and as parents, we could raise that same question, right? And often we do. In fact, I know we do because I'm dealing with that frequently with parents. We raise our kids and they behave less than we expected, right? And we often go, what did I do wrong? Is that true? We often go, what did I do wrong? And that is, that is where Paul is going to query too. He's not going to give himself a like totally clean slate because by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, he's going to be really opening his heart to them saying, you know, what else can I do besides let you know my heart is wide open to you? As a parent would appeal to his child, right? When we know that child is drifting so far away from the model that we want them to exhibit, we will, uh, we will pull all stops out and go to all measures. All right, so under point number one, as we're dealing with the idea of you prove my apostleship, we work through subpoint A, B, C, and D. To be an apostle is to be one that is what? Sent. All right, that's your subpoint. That's, that's how you understand subpoint A. To be an apostle is to be one that is sent. And in that sense, application is to you and to me as well. Would you agree with that? <clears throat> if the apostle is sent, <clears throat> then we are also carrying somewhat of the apostolic uh, privilege because we're sent as well. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I mean, if we want to work through sort of the, um, what we would call a kind of biblical theological framework of being sent, we have the living word in Christ, then we have the spoken word by Christ, then we have the written word by Christ through the, uh, through the prophets and the apostles, then we have that word sent by the representative of Christ, that being the church. So in the same way that the father sent the son and the son sent the apostles, the apostles gave us the depository of truth called the Bible, that we now use as we are sent into the world. This can be called in other terms, who knows the term? We dealt with that more fully last time. Missionary work, to be a missionary. All right, by application then, can a missionary be a role and function of a parent? Are we not seeking to be missional with our kids? All right, so I am definitely driving this uh, driving this analogy closer home by a parent-child relationship. And remember what, uh, what uh, the Proverbs would say, that an obedient child is the delight of his father. That becomes a radical Christocentric principle, does it not? Because Christ is the obedient child to his father. And in that sense, this is what um, Paul is also getting at here. One more concept. Um, the healthy father-child relationship is also a teacher, didaskalon, 
master-disciple relationship. The master-disciple relationship. When the master is done shaping the disciple, the disciple becomes like the master. You would agree with that. Right. And when you and I are done being worked on by the present Lord, what we call the resident Lord, the Holy Spirit, we are shaped into the image of God's son. So the father is discipling us as well. And then you and I actually play a role in discipling others. And I'll just give a caveat on that last part before I move forward. I thought about this years ago. Our job is never to disciple anyone into our image. So there is a distinction between the work that Christ has as the privileged master in shaping men and women into his image. And that's because he is the visible concrete image of the father. There is no other image to be like God, except that of Christ, right? That's Hebrews chapter one, two. He is the, he is the expressed image and precise characterization of God. He is the exquisite, impeccable, unflawed uh, representation of the father. And therefore he becomes the true and identical um, thing, our essence, our truth by which you and I are being transformed into his image. If in fact, the spirit of God is working in our life. So that's what the sending is all about. And uh, we also saw that the apostolic privilege also had the authority of doing signs and wonders. I don't have to take you through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about that. So when you read the book of Acts, the, the Greek term is ha proxies in the Greek, the ha proxies of the apostolos, the acts of the apostles. It's really the acts of the apostles, the the um, the um, efficient agency is the spirit of God. The instrumental agency is the work of the apostles. Chapter one, Peter, James, John, chapter 28, the apostle Paul, right? Jews and Gentiles. So their work was always about shaping and molding men and women into the image of Christ on a missional level through signs and wonders. Just wanted to mark that. Just imagine uh, sub point B. Just imagine if you had a catechizer in your life that had all of those kind of radical tools in his teaching toolbox where he could lay hands on you and heal you, where he could pray for you and you recover your sight. You know, what a blessing that would be, right? Um, and, and so as you affirm that, and, and I would trust that you would, please know that that is possible in the person of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? It's possible in the person of the Holy Spirit to experience. That's why we're headed to 1 Corinthians 12 to negotiate some of that. If God wants to, he can bring about healing in our lives because of the resident lordship of the third person. That's why he's given in order to affirm the authenticity of Christ and the genuine missional work of um, of the church. Just the joy of knowing that we could pray to God in Christ's name. And healing could take place. I would also say this if you want to stretch this out as another kind of uh, continual application in your life. If salvation, soter is the Greek term, soter, if salvation is centrally comprehended in a healing motif, and I told you that, right? It is centrally comprehended in a healing motif. If it is, you and I 
are continually being healed of our sins. It's important to comprehend that. If, if salvation, soter, is the chief historic longstanding medical term for healing, and it is, then you and I are being healed as we continue to be sanctified. For what is sanctification but a continual process of regeneration up out of fallible principles of behaviors and attitudes and weaknesses biologically, psychologically, and practically? What is sanctification but a healing unto perfection, which is already ours in Christ? Does that make some sense? Right. And so when we are in when we are uh, encouraged, according to Romans chapter 12, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that's actually Ephesians chapter four. But also in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Any listen, any kind of renewing that's taking place is healing. It would correspond to the body going through the process of decay because of sin. You know, first, second, third laws of entropy. We're we're falling apart. We're cooling down. We are corrupting. But regeneration is taking place at the same time. Your Bible said it in 2 Corinthians 4, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Is that true? So there's a corresponding connection between the physical submitting to the law of God in death. God is glorified in that. You should know that. But at the same time, the inner man is he is emerging and transcending. And and this is where. okay. so and we could talk about this whenever you want to. This is where um, older people should be more helpful to younger people. Because as their outward man is perishing chronologically, they should be maturing. And that maturity is really about experience producing wisdom and understanding because of now right choices that we have discovered that we now can um, operate out of uh, and not dissipate like we did in our youth. In your youth, you glory in your strength. Is that true? And you waste a lot of time. Like, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I I do not want to be 30 again. I mean, I don't mind having the strength that I did. But at 63, if I had the strength of being 30, I would be asking for a curse. Because the pride would be there so much. Because a 63-year-old brother would be dunking on 20-year-olds. And and of course, I don't know how I can preach with that kind of paradoxical glory operating in my life without bringing it up in the sermon. So now my vertical is about this high. okay? and so um, we it's so when you're humbled, what you end up doing is this is called combinatory explosion. It's a concept in cognitive science, combinatory explosion. And this is what happens in our society to nullify you from making right choices. I want you to get this. This is a side note, but it helps. Combinatory explosion means when there are too many choices out there, you will be paralyzed because you can't make the best choices when it's too many choices. And, and this often is the confusion that our young people are in right now. Like because there's such a vast amount of information that is available to them, they don't know how to whittle it down to a number of important, efficient, practical, progressive categories. 
So they need older, wiser people to help them weed out a whole lot of stuff that would waste their time and narrow it down to a few categories that can put them in the wheelhouse of their gifting. So I'm going to say this again, just for the record, you and I are called to help young people find their gifts. That's your job. And and what that requires is being able to help them narrow all of these choices down to choices that correspond with your bird's eye view in their life for many years and picking up on the three and four favorite gifts that God gave that child and help them affirm those gifts and say, hey, you have the gift of intellect. You are a very bright person. You think things through. You might be an engineer. You have the gift of helps. You know how to fix things. You know how to organize. You know how to structure things. You know how to get people going. You know how to motivate people. That's the gift of consolation and exhortation. That's going to fit them inside a category that's going to limit all of those choices down to things that can affirm their gifts. Am I making some sense now? That's what you want to do. And you want to do that early enough in your relationship with them where they develop the confidence of operating within two, three or four boxes of possibilities until they find the one or two or maybe three that they can begin to negotiate in onto. Does that make some sense? And that would be true for us as well as you get older. Um, And and generally Christians are humble enough to... um, they're humble enough to say, I'm a new Christian. I'm, I'm 750 years old, but I'm a new Christian in the faith. And as such, um, as such, I'm a babe. I really want to find out, you know, how can God use me? Does that make some sense? And you don't have to be proud about that. You can be humble about that. But what you would really need are mature believers who have made enough mistakes to have a lengthy conversation with you so that you can affirm the general mistakes that we make in a chronological blockchain of experience and then begin to talk about what you have discovered your gifts are, what your passions are, what your strengths are. And then maybe we can identify them in the area of spiritual gifts. That's why we're headed to 1 Corinthians 12. So what Paul is doing is trying to keep this church together as a spiritual father in that way. So signs and wonders as second Corinthians 12 affirm, then they save the elect. These qualities were designed to save the elect. I I love this. Look at first Corinthians nine where we are and look at verse 22 for a moment. Just notice the axiom here. This is first Corinthians nine 22. I want to hurry up and get by it, but here's important. He says to the weak, I became weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means do what? This is where we began to close off on Tuesday. Now, notice what Paul is doing. He's saying I'm flexible in order that the outcome might be the salvation of men and women. I'm allowing myself the flexibility of relational compatibility in order that the outcome might be their savability. More important to me than the rigid, strict, sort of dogmatic certitudes of what I believe and hold to is the ability for those truths to take on a more malleable and fluid capacity so that between me and that person, they might be able to see the core things that constitute who I am in Christ and hunger for them. So this is a a powerful action. In fact, go back to verse 21. I want to 
I want to tap into that for a moment and come back. Uh, Verse 20 It's going to start at verse 20. You could itemize all these unto the Jews. I became as a what? And that I might gain the Jew. We talked about this gaining to them that are under law as under law that I might gain them that are under law. We could spend a whole class asking the question, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a targeted community that you are going to be inserted into both by divine providence and willingly and you are going to become compatible enough to that community without losing who you are in Christ in order to reach them for Christ. What an ethic. The same thing with the Gentiles. To them that are under law, that I might gain them that are under law. This is, Jews, this is, this is the Jews. Now notice verse 21. To them that are without law, that would be who? The Gentiles being not without law to God. In other words, he can negotiate and understand that the Gentiles are lawless fundamentally, but he himself is not lawless essentially. That means he can hold in tension the absence of an external code that strictly governs their behavior while acknowledging there's an internal code in him that maintains his parameters of propriety as he deals with the pagan. Now, here's what he also knows, and you should know it too, because I taught this early on at Grace. There is no one that is born of God as a human being made in this image that is without law, ultimately. Right, so it's important for you to know that. You wouldn't have the capacity to witness or evangelize effectively any lost person if the lost person didn't have the law of God written on their heart and in their conscience. You have to have grounds of compatibility to be a priest, A priest is a person taken from among those who have infirmity. And if humanity is an infirmed group of people, then you and I can only minister to them as priests because we too have infirmity. Did that come home? Right. So now what you are recommending is your commonality with them at the infirmity level, but you are also commending to them the assets and resources of healing that you have received from Christ and now as a priest can give to them. That makes sense, doesn't it? All right, good, because that's what Paul is really thinking through here. Verse 22. Verse 22, to the weak I became as weak. Again, we can pull that out and raise that up. What does that look like? Somebody can raise that up as a question when we get into Q&A because um, weakness has an advantage and a disadvantage. I was listening to uh, a program today and a particular proposition was made that I thought was extremely important to capture. So so as we deal with logic, we we use a term called the law of non-contradiction. And and it's critically important that that law of non-contradiction does not get set aside in discourse or in argument today. Because what we're dealing with today, as I've been teaching you, is you and I are in a postmodern Maoist, neo-Marxist culture of destroying everything at the level of denying reality and affirming unreality. Is that true? That being the case, people are playing games with saying things are one way when they are the other way. If you get rid of the law of non-contradiction that makes a distinction between black and white, up and down, go and stop. 
male and female, parents and children. If you get rid of the law of non-contradiction, you have no grounds for arguing that this is not that. Did that come home? You have no grounds for saying a man cannot be a woman. You have no grounds if the law of non-contradiction does not set as an axiomatic principle that distinguishes between those two species. And so it's important for us to know that the issue of weakness has to be understood soundly and redemptively because weakness is not equivalent to strength. Right. Paul didn't say, in my weakness, I was strong. He did not say that. That would be a contradiction of the principles of logic. He said in his weakness, the strength of Christ was made manifest. Did that make some sense? So now we got two categories operating in the same space with the second category emerging up out of that first category as a kind of sort of mode of relationship that God calls us to. He calls you and I to acknowledge our weakness in order that his strength may emerge up out of it and prevail in getting the job done so that God gets the glory. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right, because God takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. Like God's not going to battle with your strength before he presents his strength to save somebody else who is without strength. That made some sense, didn't it? All right, going back again, if in fact people generally are, with, are weak by nature, and they are, ostinental is the Greek term, it is the prefix A, not, not strong. It's from where we get our term steroids. I told you that many years ago. So steroids is a synthetic molecule that actually strengthens the body, right? No, it's an organic, but we also make a synthetic mode of steroids. That's what athletes use to build body, build, build muscle. So when you and I are weak, that means we don't have the organic steroid to actually be able to do what God calls us to do. He has to strengthen us with all might in the inner man so that we by faith are able to do what God calls us to do. Him working in us the willing to do of his good pleasure. That makes sense, right? So now the paradox of my weakness and his strength becomes the manner in which God is glorified in my life as he helps other weak people. So that came home, right? Good. All right. So this is this is what we call Paul's gospel or evangelical ethic dealing with the people of God. I love this. Uh, You prove my apostleship because I'm sent. I have the capacity to show signs. These signs save the elect. It's really a powerful, powerful truth. And uh, this is their seal, the seal of the apostles, the affirmation, the proof. That's what the term seal meant. This is what he was saying. I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. We were there, and I just want to lock in it. A seal is a mode or means of authentication of something that is alleged to be true or to be owned by someone. When you seal something, like in the old days of the monarchs, they had a clay seal that they put the clay on and they stamped their ring on it. That seal underscored that that product or that property was owned by the monarch. What Paul says about us is that the seal upon us is really the spirit of the living God. You guys would know that. 
That's first, Second Corinthians one twenty. But I want us to see it in in Second Corinthians chapter three one through six briefly. I want to talk about how the seal of Christ in our life is the presence of the Spirit working in us to be able to get this work done called the ministry of the gospel. Here it is. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? No. Or need we as some other epistles, uh, some others epistles of commendation to you? No. Or letters of commendation from you? Three rhetorical no's, right? No, no, no. Right? Like, (laughs) I am not going to dig through all of the uh, massive boxes of paperwork I have in the garage to show you my certificate, my birth certificate that I'm your daddy. That'll come home in a minute. I'm not going to go get my birth certificate every time I have to let you know I'm your daddy. Can't you tell I'm your daddy? Right. Because I'm going to be talking about this on Sunday. I'll just drop it now. This will help some of you. There are three critical modes of epistemological certainty. All right. We're in theology class. So that's what you get on Friday. Okay. There are three fundamental modes of knowing something. The first is what we call revelation. Okay, revelation is the superior primal modality by which God gives mankind knowledge of something. He tells us. That's called revelation. Okay, holy men of old spake as they were moved. The revelation came down from heaven. It was unloosed. That's our Greek term. Okay, apoluso in second Peter chapter one, right? The scripture says no scripture came at any time except by the unloosening or by interpretation It really should be or by revelation, right? Because for us to know anything, God has to tell us. Would you agree with that? Man, we better get this one. For us to know anything about anything, God has to tell us. Now, if you're nodding your head in the affirmative, you are what we call a presuppositional apologetist. That means scripture for you is the concrete grounds of codifying all reality as we can know it. Why? Because God spoke and what God spoke was written down. That's called inscripturated, agrafe, okay? So the revelation, the apolupsis became inscripturated. The inspiration that moved the prophets moved them to write down what God said. Would you agree with that? So God revealed his self, his will, his purpose to Moses. That's the first five books. We call that the Pentateuch, right? And then God revealed himself to the prophets. That's what we learned last Sunday. Hey, Whenever I talk to a prophet, I'll come to him in dreams and revelations and visions and similitudes. Only a couple prophets am I speaking face to face. Moses and then then Jesus, right? Because Moses is a foreshadow of the coming of Jesus. So Moses had a special relationship with God like no other, other than Christ himself. So you got the revelation. Then you have what is called the inscripturation. But that inscripturation That inscripturation now becomes for you and I testimonial knowledge. So most of us are taught testimonially. Let me see if I can build that. When I say three categories, 
The first category is revelation. The second category really can be what we call experiential knowledge. And this is where the prophets are brought into a relationship with God, where God tells them what's going on. And in many cases, they are participating in that original manifestation of God's will so that they can say, I was there when it happened. They are scholars. They are scientists. Was Moses there when the children of Israel were called out of Egypt? Was he there when they went through the Red Sea? Was he there when God destroyed the uh, Egyptians with plagues for a year and so forth and so on? Right. So these are what are called experiential knowledge. An experiential understanding, revelation, God opens the heaven, experience is what the person who is privileged to be first and foremost in experiencing tangibly and physically and empirically. I know because I saw, right? This is how Jesus used it in John chapter three. We know what we believe because we are the ones producing it, making it happen. As John three, speaking of himself and the father. We speak the truth because we know what we believe. Now it gets passed on testimonially. And this is the third category. I want you to grab it. The third category is what I'm doing with you and what you do with others. The third category is testimonials. So your Bible is a testimony of the truth. Got it? And so when we go to school to learn reading and writing and arithmetic and other disciplines, those disciplines avail us the capacity of testimonial knowledge. The knowledge that comes to us from other people, that comes to us from people that experienced it, that comes to those who experienced it by revelation of God explaining to them what it was. So that's the third category. I'm just giving that to you, those three categories, revelation, experience and testimonials. And by the way, testimonial is critically important because God meant historically for it to be written in a book. So this is why we have hieroglyphics. This is why we have papyrus writings. This is why we had a lot of the writings on sheepskin, whatever they were put in jars and they were preserved so that the testimony could be written down. We call it codified. Now, between the experiential knowledge and the testimonial knowledge, there's one I would call subcategory that bridges the two. It's called tradition. 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 Tradition is the mechanism by which, this is the Greek term paradosi, it is the mechanism by which information is transferred from one community to the next community orally, and communally, like a culture preserves traditional values and passes them on by function and by dialogue and by culture code. Did that come home? Culture code function dialogue, culture code function dialogue. I like what I'm talking about right now because I'm doing what parents are called to do. Parents are called to believe what was oracularly given through the experiential relationship of the prophets, codified in the text, given to us as a testimonial, which we make as a tradition in our homes. 
the traditions of Christians is that we live out the testimony before our kids so that our kids have an audible, visual, sensual, uh, sensual, empirical experience of what it means to be in a Christian home. And most of our kids have that, that blessing. Many of our kids have that blessing, right? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. All of your kids have the blessing of growing up in a Christian nation. I'm going to nail this and go on to our second point because I'm doing this for the larger audience. The people that listen to me every day at 12 noon. As the announcer says, we get to have lunch with PJ from 12 to 1230. Spiritual lunch. In the West, we have had the privilege for 300 years to have established a worldview predicated upon Judeo-Christian values. The West emerged up out of England, out of, um, you know, Europe, out of tyranny, out of fascism to establish the principle of a free man, free woman constitutionally as a society, recognizing our rights, inalienable rights by God. Would you agree with that? Of course. And we and we did that under the predication of what the word of God said, how things were and how things are. You have no authorial force to tell someone that they have individual sovereign autonomy over against the king if there's not an authority higher than the king. I'm being passionate for myself. If you don't get it, you're just fine. Right. Because see, in, 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 in Europe, they hated that because the king was like a god. And the Proverbs lays it out where wherever, so, wherever the authority of the uh, wherever. So the word of the king is there's power. He can execute you. So he was like a god. But then when he's reminded that every citizen has equal right before God above him, his powers are now necessarily limited. And he now has to answer to an authority higher than him if he gets out of line and turns into an antichrist, which is where my government is going today. Now, if my argument is valid, if my argument is valid, if my argument is valid, listen to me, if the argument is valid that the world has the best epistemological standing when it recognizes a God that is sovereign over everything. He's not some little peon God. There's no other God out there that's going to vanquish his authority. And that God has told every creature made in his image, you have rights given to you by God so that men, no matter what the matriculation of authority is, have to respect you as a human being. When you have that kind of framework, you have the grounds now for a legal system of reprieve and justice and mercy. This is what, listen carefully, this is why when Moses brought the children of Israel out of the wilderness by the authority of God, he didn't go in there by himself and he didn't come out with the people by himself. He went in as an apostle and he went in in the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, Yeshua, Hashim. 
And he laid down authority to prove that God was the supreme being and brought his people out of a tyrannical antichrist system that did not acknowledge Yahweh nor human beings as being ontologically equal with the representative government that they were under. So in our society, we have to argue for that today. And I'm listening to I'm listening to the implications of what I'm saying right now. And this is horrible because. As I opened up talking to you about the father-son paradigm or the parent-children paradigm, I must once again say that we're at the bottom of the rung of this assault on the nature of God because it has already wiped out the male, it has wiped out the female, and it's going after the children now, asserting that the family is already desecrated. Are you guys hearing me? And you know what I'm doing daily is I'm praying that God's people wake up to the late hour that we are in in this battle. I'm praying that they wake up to this late hour that we're in in this battle. Um, and, And here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking how much we owe our children if we leave them to this diabolical system. And don't teach our children who their God is and what their rights are and and how that their rights cannot legitimately be taken from them and that they're born to live and breathe and have their being uh, standing for those rights that God gave them, even to the death. Because America will not be recovered unless we're willing to stand for the truth to the death. I'll leave that there. I'm not getting into politics in that regard. I'm talking about the late hour that we're in because our society does not actually believe that we have been taken over by Marxism for the last 200 years. And we're in part of the last stages of the um, ideological subversion that I've taught you guys for years about. Propaganda leading to demoralization, leading to crisis, which is where we are, and ultimately stabilization. Stabilization is the new normal. That's what they're trying to bring about the new normal. Y'all hear what I'm saying? The new normal. This is why I don't like when I hear Christian folk take up terms that they don't understand about. Well, guess this is the new normal. No, this is an old normal. We've been here before. It's called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's called the Roman Empire. Okay. And so it's extremely important that you and I know we're actually fighting for the family. That's what we're doing. We're fighting for the family and no one really is exempt from this war, men, women, and children. And the people that are going to win this battle, if it gets won, is going to be the young people and it's going to be women that's going to actually turn the tide. Young people and women, women have to flank, flank because of the disposition and dispossession of men right now until we can create a generation of men. And this is not a sexist interpretation. You can debate me with the mic when we get into the mic mode. This is not a sexist interpretation. But the Bible says salvation comes by a woman through a man. That is the nature of the gospel paradigm. And so the church is called to be that woman that works in cohort with that baby that is in the womb that is called the son of the living God, right? Protecting him until he reaches full status. That's the goal of the woman to protect and to procure and to help develop men that will be willing to lay down their lives. Salvation for humanity only comes by men willing to lay down their life. There's no peace. There's no blessing. There's no joy. 
in the midst of a war where men are not willing to lay down their life. Did that make some sense? All right, I'll leave that there. So now what we're going to do is look at uh, four, five verses. We've been here before. That was a long side roll. I only got about 10 minutes to deal with point number two. Verse two, let's walk this through. I'm sure we dealt with this, but I want to walk it through. You are our epistle and written, written in our heart, known and read of all men. This would be the same as saying, you know, by the grace of God, we did a pretty good job in raising our kids. And now wherever they are on the planet, they have our last name and they don't disgrace us. Did that make some sense? They have our last name and they don't disgrace us. They have our last name and they don't disgrace us. God does not mind us using that lesser analogy to correspond with the analogy of him as being the father of us all. This is Ephesians chapter uh, three, pull up verse um, 15, I believe, maybe 14, Ephesians 3, uh, 14, start at 14. I love this. Learn this by heart. For this call, says the apostle Paul, I bow my what? Not knee, knees. So he's not doing this. This is a football game. He's doing this. He bowed his knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the top of the pinnacle, right? God, the father. The Lord Jesus is the mediator. And notice what he says in verse 15. Of whom the whole family. See it? This is what I love about Paul. Paul understood the larger global extent of the impact of the gospel at the family level. There's only one family of God. Only one family of God. I can park it right there because watch this. I want you to get this. The enemy has worked to break up the family. Not just in the secular material world, but in the church. The enemy has worked to break up the family. So the family doesn't understand its underlying ontological unity in God as the grounds upon which it can be in this world, the salt and the light necessary to contend with the false family of the whore. Now come home in a minute. Don't you think the devil has children? He got a big old family out there, doesn't he? And and wouldn't it follow that if we're in a spiritual war, and we are, I think you agree with that, we're in a war, that this is a family against, this is the Hatfields and the McCoys right now. Would you agree with that? It's really true. So, you know, I I want you to think about it on your own as you guys are all, and ladies and gentlemen are all engaged in whatever battles and and warfares God would assign you to, because I know he's assigning all of us to battles. I know that. I know that. I want you to be able to be as wise and prudent and integrative as possible as you would perceive and feel like you need to know who the family members are. Did that come home? All right. If the enemy can get you to create a distorted view of the family, he can get you to actually work for his team. Is this course of reasoning okay that I'm doing with you or am I boring you? All right, so very important, very important because you and I want to be strategic where we are today because it became evident to me about 10, 12 years ago, the deconstruction of the church. 
I remember sending you guys a video presentation about a year ago about the evils in the church. How many of you guys remember that? The evils and apostasy in the church. Right. And how that we learned that communism had entered into our churches way long ago and got into our seminaries. And just like Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. You shall know the devil by his works. Aha. Uh-huh. We got everything fractured into a gazillion different little tribal groups. And they're so isolated into their tribal groups that we don't have an underlying matrix of unity of purpose in the centrality of Christ to be able to take on a unified front to fight against the evil that's in our present time. Am I making some sense? Say amen. Good. Now, the reason why I'm saying I'm going to give you one little one little facet of my my own global um, my own global exploration. One of the things I've been doing is just kind of petering out to you studies on what's happening in Africa. Just petering out, not doing a whole lot, but I've been sending some of you guys on the renewal of the African unity because Africa has been dominated by a kind of Eurocentric imperialism for so long that it has never ever been able to come into full age into full maturity on its own right. Now, I talked about this back when we were at the old church for decades. I'll just share it with you a little bit if this is of interest to you. And it should be, because what I'm talking about are geopolitics at the spiritual level. I just sent you guys one today. I sent you two or three. My little African brother who was getting at it for about 38 minutes. How many of you guys watched that? Did you watch it? Did he get down? I just sent it out. I said, there you go. That's what I want happening. That's what I want happening. Uh, Where they are recovering a sense of unified identity and being able to dictate their own relationship with the European powers, the Western powers, and now the Eastern powers. And they're dictating their relationship with them on grounds that's inclusive of a biblical worldview. Y'all got that? Extremely refreshing to hear. And what I love about uh, the president of Uganda, Mesavini, what he's doing is overtly throwing down the gauntlet about you're not going to convert our children. This is not going to happen. You're not going to convert our children. We, we've been watching what y'all have been doing in the West. We see how rotten you are. We see the rottenness. We're not going to let it happen. Sorry, we'll work with somebody else. And I'm going, Lord, give that revelation to our leaders. So we can clean house for real, because that's the only way we'll turn around. And if that were to begin to happen here, you can expect a whole lot of internal conflict, turmoil and tribulation. If men and women begin to wake up here to the unity that we have in God and having Christ and the biblical worldview, that is our inheritance here as the West. You're going to have a fight on your hands but the outcome is already known. We win. We win. Right. So it's just something I want you to massage in your thinking at the larger scale. What this might do on a proxies level on a proxies level is help you understand First Corinthians 9, verse 20, 21 and 22. We just read about Paul becoming all things to all men that if by any means he might win some. He didn't really try to waste his time undoing categories. 
He didn't try to waste his time undoing categories. His whole goal was to show how those categories were deficient only for one reason. It didn't have the fullness in those categories. Jews had truth. What they didn't have was the fullness. Gentiles had truth. What they didn't have was the fullness. Am I making some sense? All right, so good. I I got you for about 10 more minutes before you go to sleep. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing with you. I'm asking you to learn how to be more integrative in your thinking so that you're more efficient in your progress of actually communicating Christ into the midst of the people group, as opposed to feeling like you need to be an apologetic to protect just about, you know, a square inch of theological territory that justifies your grounds of what it means to be a believer. Does that make some sense? Right. Um, because we made that mistake for the last 200 years in the church in the West. We got three, 30,000 different denominations. 30,000 different denominations. Everybody, their mama and their cat and their dog and their parakeet got their own denomination. Did that make some sense? Now, everybody with their own cat and dog got their own denomination. Um, who was I dealing with? I was dealing with somebody recently around cults. And I was telling them, every one of us have the potential to be cultic if we're insecure. Every one of us have the potential to be cultic if we're insecure. And you'll hear ignorant people call you a cult if you're committed. Like people say, grace is a cult. I said, you got to be kidding as wide open as our doors is, our doors are so wide. People can come and go and we don't have helicopters hovering over your house and we definitely don't have the NSA listening in on your conversation. We're not the Church of Christ Science. We're none of that. I mean, it, we're so open is not even funny, right? It's the notion of being a cult. And one of the fundamentals of a cult is to control you and keep you confined psychologically and geographically. Right. Uh, And and one of the things we established when we first established grace was that we would be an open door ministry. Jesus never. Jesus says, I always ministered in public. If I wasn't doing synagogue, if I wasn't doing uh, temple, I was doing street ministry. How are you coming out against me as a thief when I preached in your streets for three and a half years? Right. And so when we started grace, the thing that I told us at grace was we're going to do everything we can publicly. So that people can know who we are, what we believe, why we believe what we do, why we act the way we do. Right. With the exception of what we call confidences, you know, uh, you got to protect confidences. But in terms of general principles, we're wide open. The same person that I am now was the person that I was 20 years ago. Maybe a little bit more mature. Does that make some sense? And that's the way we all should be. We shouldn't be one way over here and another way over there. Jesus wasn't the apostle weren't. So good. The same thing would be the case with parents with children. What children should discover in the life of their parents is that their parents are still growing and maturing, but at their core, they're the same. Did that make some sense? Their parents are still growing and maturing, but at their core, they're, they're the same. Because growing and maturing just seem, simply means you're alive. I just want to make sure you know that. You know, children would love for you and not to be stuck 
you know, in a kind of paralysis, frozen in our positions. But we can't afford to be that today because we're dealing with stuff at the technological level that requires a great deal of mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual maturity and flexibility. Does that make some sense? You got to be a lot more strategic today, um, a lot more strategic. I am, I'm not afraid, but I am very much aware that in the next five to 10 years, we will have a formidable task of bringing the young people back to a biblical worldview. A formidable task. All right, let's get to point number uh, two in our outline so we can work this through. Our rights to be supported. That really is what Paul was arguing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 3. He argues this from verses 3 through 14. I'm just going to read it through, work through these subpoints really quick, and then I'll open the floor for conversation. The fundamental premise of the Apostle Paul was that as a minister of the gospel, he has a right to be supported. And you and I would agree with that, right? Um, even though some people, even though some people won't. Here's his argument. He says, my answer to them that examine me, that that judge me. This is the text that comes from First uh, Corinthians four, two and three, where Paul said, you know, I don't care about your judgment against me. I don't even judge my own self. The Lord is the one who judges me. So, I mean, if you don't see me for who I am, the Lord knows who I am. I told you this is what will liberate you from other human, shallow, distorted misrepresentations of you because people love to judge you and get you wrong. They love to judge you and get you wrong. They don't love to judge you and get you right because there's nothing to getting you right. (laughs) If they just look at you, that's who you are. It doesn't pay to get you right. They look for weak people. And so they get you wrong in order to draw weak people against you. You got that right. Um, Notice what he says Uh, here. Here's what I have to say to those that um, that um, that would judge me. He says in verse four, have we not power to eat and to drink? You guys see that? I love that. Look under point number uh, point number two, sub point A. You guys see that participating in the what? Oh, I can spend some time there. Not going to do it. Think about what the Apostle Paul is saying right now. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, do we not have the right to dwell among you and enjoy the benefits of the commonwealth of the saints? Somebody say amen heartily. Right. Do we not have the right to enjoy the benefits that come from a community that is self-sustained by the grace of God across a number of important structural categories. One is eating and drinking. That's a common staple for every human being, right? That's a common staple. So when 10 of us gather together by the grace of God and we become a community, I mean, Jesus said out of the mouth of what? Two or three, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. What a powerful, and I could, I could drill down it. That's not just two or three gathered in judgment. That's just two or three gathered in his name. He's the one that gathers. Is it possible to conceive that the infinite God through the mediatorial work of God's son, Jesus, can resource two or three, so that they can be an effectual witness in their community. 
with the cause of the gospel, both in terms of the proposition of the gospel and the power of the gospel in terms of its resources to heal, to testify, to provide, procure whatever else is needed. Again, we're not at chapter 12 yet, but we'll get there because what the church was given was a multitude of gifts to be able to persuade men that this Jesus we're talking about is at the right hand of God. He's the one that's sovereign Lord. Right. Can two or three be effectual to that end? Hurry up. What's the answer? That's why he sends them out two by two and equips them with power to start communities. It's true, isn't it? It's true. And didn't and didn't he say if they Jesus, didn't he say if they open the door for you to come in and stay because you got to preach a lengthy sermon? Because, you know, if I go, they, they got to feed me breakfast, lunch and dinner. Y'all already know that. Right. Y'all got PJ. He preaches for like seven hours straight. So you got to do breakfast, lunch and dinner. And what he said was when men and women respond positively to the gospel, the natural reciprocity is going to be to feed and take care of the ministers of the gospel. There should be absolutely no evil thought around that reciprocity. There should be no evil thought around that. Am I making some sense? There should be no evil thought around that fundamental thing. He's going to explain it later on down the line. He's going to tell you, he say, look, if we've sown into your life spiritual things, what is it for you to give us some bread and water? See what I'm getting at? All right. Besides, we are all praising God from whom all blessings flow. Don't tell me that the bread and the lamb and the chicken and the bullocks came from you. It came from the same God that's sending the gospel to you, widening your heart to bless you in your soul. This is what we call in our theological understanding, the commonwealth. This is called a commonwealth, Ephesians chapter four. You need to understand that. So when God sets up the community correctly, the community interacts at multiple levels of self-sustaining. Is that true? We self-sustain each other across many different spectrums. It's not only monetary giving, but interaction among one another to facilitate needs between one another, right? That almost always have just a certain amount of monetary necessity around it because the commodity that we have to use to get things done is what? Money. So the community is working as God would have it work to provide for the needs of everybody in the body. Have we not power to eat and drink? Verse five. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? That's going to come under sub point B in our outline, leading families as leaders. Do we not have the right to do that? All right. So I got first Timothy chapter three, verses one through six. You don't have to go there. But what I would say to people who are uh, not grounded in their church There's no such thing as an elder arbitrarily assigning himself or the congregation assigning him to leadership arbitrarily. There's no such thing as somebody who says, I think I'm called to be an elder. There's no such thing as even the congregation said, I think we're called to make you our elder. That, that, That is completely contrary to God's word, right? An elder or a deacon or a pastor is the consequence of those three Offices being part of the community long enough for the community to be able to bear record that those are good men who have met a certain criterion before they can be placed in a position of authority over you. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? That means we got to be together for some time. 
That means we got to be raising our kids together. That means we got to be going through struggles together, pains together, conflicts together, and overcoming those conflicts together. Seeing the grace of God deliver us from extreme challenges and normalizing us again and saying, okay, with that experience, this man, that man, that other man now is capable of leading the congregation as a father. Because a father goes through all that with his children. That makes some sense? All right. That's how it's done. And where churches don't have that kind of leadership, you don't have that level of safety and stability. Like churches that'll just raise up some Johnny come lately, some little, some little quick, you know, firebrand, some little mouthy individual that's got passion. They don't know what they're getting. And when they open the door to let that happen, they are now violating the protocols for qualification. And thus now you got to open the door for not only the fiery little brother, but the fiery little sister. And then you got to go from the fiery little sister to the fiery little homosexual. And then you got to go from the fiery homosexual to the fiery trans and the fiery queer. This is called a logical syllogism based upon a faulty premise. Did that come home? So that's what's in your churches today. It's in your churches. It prevails in many of our black churches. Because they they destroyed the foundation of qualification at the level of leadership. And and, and I remember teaching this years ago. As the family goes, so goes the church. Is that true? Is that axiomatic? So when our culture allows the enemy to come in and deconstruct the family and put women in positions where they shouldn't be, men in positions where they shouldn't be, children in positions where they shouldn't be, then what we're going to have is a hybrid of emotional confusion at the homo, at the bi, at the lesbian, at the queer, and at the trans level. Do you understand that? That's the natural outcome. This is what I love about our African brothers saying, no, we've been watching y'all for 50 years. We know what's up with that. 60 billion ain't going to get it. I love it. They're talking about saving themselves. Right. And, and, and we, we have to deal with that. So what Paul is saying here, we have authority to lead families. We have authority to do it. Now, let's look at the next one. Uh, verse six. I think I'm working with verse six now. I'll work through our outline. Notice, yes, notice what it says. Or I only and Barnabas, have we, have we not, have, uh, have not we power to forbear what? What would be the answer? Yeah, he, they can stop working. Now, this is a thing that's going to tie us down into our Q&A and get us out of here. What I, what's remarkable is they didn't stop working. They kept working. What they were saying to the community at, at Corinth is, we don't have to work. If we follow the law, we don't have to work. We could expect you to take care of us. But we're, we're, we're working, and we're going to drill down into that here in a moment. Verse 7, because, <clears throat> yeah, we're walking. And now he's going to use the analogy. There's going to be about seven analogies here, at least five. One, who goeth a war at any time at his own charge? That's going to be subpoint. Uh, so point D in your second point, the warrior provided for by the what? Is that true? The warriors, we send our kids into the military. And a lot of us have military family. My, my parents were military on both sides. 
My kids are military. Our leaders are military. A good portion of our leadership are great military. And their families, too, also were, were military, and, and we understand that. Um, none of them had to actually take up an offering from the church to go into the military service because we pay for that through taxes. Because if you're going to have a country, you've got to have a military. Now it's the paradigm of Israel coming out. I told you Israel was called the army of the Lord before they left Egypt. Okay, that's chapter 12 in the book of Exodus. Bring my army out of Egypt. Okay, so are we the army of the Lord as well? Right. So who goeth the ward any time of his own charges? Here's the next, sec, next next analogy. Who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? Is the task of the gospel one where we are sowing the good seed of the vineyard? Don't we get to eat of the fruit thereof? Of course we do. Paul said it to Timothy in first Timothy. The laborer is worthy of his calling. Uh, the husbandman has right at the first fruits to make sure the quality thereof is valid for sale in the market. Is it true? Right. And uh, and again, we can unpack that or who feeds of the flock or who feedeth a flock and eats not of the milk of that flock. I love the kind of paradoxical phraseology. You don't eat milk, you drink milk. But what he was saying is in addition to the flock that you eat, you get to have their milk. Milk was a luxury. That was a, a luxury. Okay. It was a real, real luxury. So uh, it's a beautiful thing because I mean, you think about the milk, the milk was for the nurturing of the little ones. It's a symbol of perpetuity. The milk was for the nurturing of the little lambs and the little sheep and the little goats, right? Or the cows. And we get to, the, the husbandman gets to enjoy that as well. It's the luxury of the benefits of the labors of the gospel that we are partakers of. Verse eight, I, I want to hear your questions. We're almost there. I want to hear your I say these things, I say these things as a man, say I these things as a man, or saith not the law also. What would be the answer? The law also. So we're going to make an assumption here that every argument that Paul made in the previous verse was predicated upon Scripture. Can we do that? Right, because we're scriptural people here at Grace. That's why we inundate you with all of our outlines with a bunch of Bible verses. You know, you get to challenge us whether or not the Bible verses literally correlate with our propositions. But what we try to do is give you an underlying text for our thoughts and our framing and our arguments. We don't ever want to be comfortable with laying out arguments without justifying them on scriptural grounds. It's simply laziness when you don't. And should you train a congregation to listen to you talk? for 35 or 40 minutes without quoting scripture, you are training them to trust you apart from the word of God. Did that make some sense? Right. This is why all the saints that come to grace, when you go to other churches, you ought to feel pretty uncomfortable when they sit up there and preach for 45 minutes or an hour soliloquies and all kind of, you know, the discombobulated circular reasonings. And and now where did he start at? What what text did he start from? Like, you know, and and it was, I don't know what pastor said this many years ago. I want to, I want to say that it was, uh, oh, uh, Barnhouse. I'm trying to remember Barnhouse's first name. Uh, 
Donald Gray Barnhouse, he would say, uh, some preachers are like the Holy Ghost. The wind blows <laughs> where it wills. You don't know from whence it came or whence it going. <laughs> So is the preaching of some people, right? When it's over, we're like, what, what, what was that about, right? Nothing logical, nothing grounded, nothing coherent, nothing expository, nothing developed, nothing Christocentric. And, and you know at Grace how good it feels to know where I'm starting and know where I'm going. Don't you? You can open your outline and you can follow. You can know where I'm going. Right. And, and what a comforting thing to, to be able to know. I know where he's going. I've told you the analogy. I tell my men who are teachers all the time. I say, brothers, listen, please. Nobody wants to get on your plane and ride with you down the runway. And then you get up in the air and you go through all these gyrations and they don't know where they're going. That is not a comfortable ride. Right. Your healthiest churches are going to have expository preaching that gives you a sound premise and a developmental process that makes sense. It might be challenging to you as you and I should be stretched, but it's going to make sense. Okay, so here's the next one. Also, I'm thinking that uh, we are under point number, uh, sub point number uh, E, the vine dresser as partaker, and then F, the shepherd enjoys the produce of the flock. That's what he says. And then finally, a pattern of self-support. Watch this, a pattern of self-support. So look at verse, uh, verse uh, go back with me to verse uh, 14. So we got this already. First Corinthians 9, 14. Uh, start back at verse 13. I'm sorry, the, the argument might start. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? We're talking about the priests, right? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar as well. We're talking about people offering the sacrifices. In the um, Levitical code, this is the sacerdotal work of the priest. Whenever a sacrifice was brought by the sinner to be offered up to God, God got a portion of it, the best portion. And there were specific categories that he got. He got like the breast and hinder part. The fatty part was the Lord's. And then the priest got other portions. And then some of it was offered up in sacrifice. Did that make some sense? And it anticipated the employment and uh, provision for the priests who are standing as a mediator between the sinner and God. The sinner ought to be appreciative of the fact that in his coming to God in devotion and in sacrifice typologically in that lamb, that the priest who is mediating before God in his behalf is also being satisfied by that same lamb that he is offering that's being accepted by God on his behalf. This is, what, this is what we would constitute as the sufficiency of the gospel being preached and proclaimed among us. That as the gospels proclaim, we're offering back to God what he gave us. What did he give us? He gave us Christ. And we're giving him back in the preaching, proclamation, teaching, living of the gospel. You would agree with that, right? Right. And this is where our, our health comes in. It's called the commonwealth. And uh, so this is his argument. Look at verse 14, final verse, and then we'll talk and get out of here. Um, Even so hath the Lord ordained that, that they which preach the gospel should what? Live of the gospel. Now go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read a portion here, close down here, and then I'm going to open the floor. We can just talk a little bit. 
So now Paul has just argued eloquently for the support of the ministers of the gospel, right? Now what he's getting ready to do is teach that him and his ministers frequently did not mandate that authorial right. I want you to hear what he says. I'm just going to read this through. This is remarkable. And you can tell me why. I would love to know why would Paul not have a tradition for himself or for ministers with him to receive money for himself from the congregants? Hold on to that. Don't say it out loud. I know you want to say it. Just wait. Why would Paul kind of make it a pattern that where he had the biblical authority to receive support from the congregation, he didn't. I want us to wrestle with that. For you yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, our impact in your life, that it was not in vain. I love this. Not without effect. Verse two. But even after we had suffered before, notice what he says, they were what? Suffering. And were shamefully entreated. As you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much what? So now notice the context in which Paul communicated the gospel to the Thessalonians. They're persecuted. There was tons of contentions around them. They were shamefully entreated, but even in the midst of that, guess what they're doing? Sowing the seed of the gospel to the Thessalonians. Verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. What I love about what's going on in Africa right now is they're calling out all of the wicked money-making prosperity preachers right now. That's the verse. You see, that's what I love about what they're doing. And the president is doing that. The president of, uh, of Uganda is doing that too. As well as there's another brother that I'd love for you to catch up with. His, his uh, last name is Lamumba. Lamumba. His name is Patrick Lamumba, eloquent communicator. And he is like the great nephew of Patrice Lamumba, who was part of the original development of Africa uh, um, some 60 or 70, 80 years ago. But Patrick Lamumba, if you catch up with him, he will he will do some historical development of Africa, but he's also a preacher. You will hear him do a great job of exposing the crooks in Africa. Verse two, verse two. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which what? Right. What a great, what a great set of qualities for the preacher. First of all, they're suffering persecution for the gospel. Secondly, they're preaching to you without trying to manipulate you, without trying to coerce you. They're not going to have three offerings in 45 minutes. Verse (laughs) 5. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. So have I been guilty of doing that? Have I been guilty of that? I I wake up every Sunday morning saying, Lord, help me not flatter. Help me encourage. Help me not flatter. Help me build up. Help me challenge. Help me push. Help me never to flatter. Because the moment I flatter you, I'm making you my God. Did that make some sense? Right. And it's easy to cross the line over into flattery when you become weak. 
okay, when you become weak. Verse 6. Nor of men sought we glory. There it is. Neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now, see, he's getting ready to get into it. What does he mean by burdensome? To be lavished with money from the congregation so that people look at them and go, look at how large Paul is living. Because he's the great man of God. Right? Because that's what goes on. This is what they're getting ready to tear down in Africa right now as we speak. Because it has been such a openly scandalous practice, particularly with our poor African brothers. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her wife. There's the paradoxical parental uh, motif. Here now Paul is talking about being gentle like a mother. I was talking to somebody in the Q&A a couple of weeks ago, and I said men can be gentle like that too, and yet we are not uh, chest feeders. <laughs> okay, just letting you know, we are not chest feeders. Uh, we can be gentle. When it's time for y'all to get some milk, then we're going to send you to the female, female component. All right. <laughs> but even as we are gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children, we can also carry that analogy over into wisdom because wisdom is personified in the female gender. And it's because of the fruitfulness. She is justified of her children. Proverbs often uses the feminine gender for wisdom because of its engendering capacity. Does that make sense? Right. And the church is a female in that in that in that motif. Right. Verse nine. Let me see. No. Verse eight. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to impart unto you not only the gospel only, but also our own what? Because you were agapetos to us, dear, my dearly beloved son, agapetos. It ha- that means to have the highest level of affection as the father does to his son. If you look at that verse carefully, here's what Paul is saying. Rather than taking from you, we not only gave you the gospel, but we gave you ourselves too. And what that looks like on an ethical, practical level is what I have tried to model in this church for 20 something years. And what that means is getting down at the ground level, doing everything that everybody else does anytime it needs doing so that there is not even a scintilla of a notion that I sit in some hierarchical position over the congregation at any time. Did that make some sense to you? Right. So people will often say, Pastor, why are you doing that? Because it needs done. That's the only reason I'm doing it, because it needs done. A piece of paper on the ground, I can pick that up. Does that mean, empty the garbage? I can do that. Sweep, I can do that. Vacuum, I can do that. Clean the windows, I can do that. I did all that. I would much rather be a janitor in glory than a prince in hell. Did that come home? Right. So this happens frequently. I love it. This is a secret glory that I have. People will invite people to church, to grace. Y'all know that. We always have new visitors. And I come in early with the guys. And I'll do this every time. They'll be coming by and I'm vacuuming or cleaning the windows. Um, is the pastor here? Yeah, he here somewhere. <laughs> There's no way that they know, right? I'm just like all the rest of the brothers. I love it. And then when I come out and, and stand at the pulpit, didn't, it, it, was that that guy I saw out there? Shouldn't it be that way? I mean, if Christ did it that way, if the apostles did it, shouldn't it be that way? 
Right. And this is about actually maintaining the centrality of the patria, the family, the family. It's about keeping the family model instead of a business model. Because in America, we love the hyper business model. And, and, it, and it destroys authenticity. Right, doesn't it? Right, very important. Um, verse 9 is our next verse. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God freely. Do you see it? That's what they're saying. This is what Paul said. Now, I want to open the floor for some q and I need some runners. Somebody run the mics right quick. I just want to just, just ask any question. We'll go for about 10, 15 minutes, and then we're out of here. Remember, next Saturday is on, you guys. Our um, annual barbecue fellowship is on. Raise your hand if you got some Q&A. If you want to uh, participate, tap in. I don't mind. I'll send you guys out of here real quick. Anybody got any questions? There should be some observations. There should no, be no one that's being passive, but I'll leave it alone. Um, so next Saturday, um, we got a can out there. We're looking for candy. I don't know how full the can is. We got to uh, do our pinatas, but I definitely want you guys to um, remember to come out and, and bring some friends as well. All right, we'll start with James. Anybody else? Nobody else sees a need to raise a question or make an observation? Go on, James. There you go, sis. Yeah, you can start. We get three questions. We're good. Praise God. I've been trying to, you know, massage this. You know, especially over this past week, since I've been have been here, but I've been working. But I've been trying to follow, especially uh, you know the videos that you sent out. Uh, you know, this past week. Yeah, you can and, ask anything about that too. We can unpack that. Go on. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to me that uh, what the sister said uh, from China, how that the Marxist agenda was targeted to the church of the West, right? to the Western church. And I sat back and I'm just like, well, wow. And it seems like the most of the church is taking it hook, line. And sinker. Yeah. And I guess I'm not understanding because I've been fortunate enough to be around enough sound doctrine that I've learned to, you know, prove all things according to the, to the scripture. And it seems like there's so many people, even in the church, I guess, was troubling for me, is that it's not being done. Like you're talking about we're back to normal. Like normal was good to begin with. Right. That was already chaotic. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, when, you know in, in talking to people, it's like there's still a lot of people, it's, it's people yet waking up. I get that. You know, my faith lets me know that we're never without hope. Right. I know we've, we've been psyoped. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, you know, to the, to the nth degree, and people don't understand what they're, what they're hearing over the legacy media, mainstream media, is all part of this, you know, all part of the design that we don't get the truth. Right. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, in talk with people, I'm trying to challenge them to dig deeper. Uh-huh. You, uh, you know, even uh, people in the church, brothers I have a prayer line with, they always want to go back to that, black white narrative that slavery mentality and it just what about sin that affects everybody you know i mean th- th- this is the issue it started in the garden and, and, and it hasn't stopped right and you know it just it, it's just troubling to me that 
there's so many pastors, except for the one I'm sitting in front of now and a few others, this tying together what's happening in the world, you know, with the scripture, what's happening in the world right now. Right. And we tie it together. I mean, I, I mean, outside of yourself, uh, maybe Vody and John MacArthur, just willing to speak to these things. Right. And you're talking about when are we going to start exposing people like, the two big preachers in Texas around here, I ain't going to call them by name, but anyway, uh, we, know who, we know who they are. Uh, when, do we start, when do we start calling them out? You know, when, when as believers do we start, I mean, in a loving way, without condemning them, calling them out? Okay. We, we are, well, we already did. So let's go back. I'm a, uh, what I wrote on the board, my, my ink is, uh, you know, drying. So for those of you who are old like me, critical race theory, that's CRT, is a false gospel. So what you have to know is that CRT is a substitute for the gospel principles that are communicated to humanity for salvation. And so when in the same way, the gospel has a codification or a framework for presentation called the word of God, so does critical race theory. So what critical race theory does is it substitutes all of the fundamental principles of the gospel with its own set of criteria, like sin, which is a universal indictment on all of humanity for critical race theory, is whiteness. Sin is whiteness in that whiteness becomes the original source of the crime of racism, that is the unpardonable sin that must be called out. It must be contended with. It must be prosecuted. It must be persecuted. That, that is the kind of uh, axiom that that lady was talking about. And the same thing with the issue of justice or social justice. For the gospel, justice is the forensic satisfaction of divine justice against that sin by the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinners who cannot meet that forensic mandate. For the social justice warrior or the critical race theorist, it is not about forensic righteousness. It's about social justice where you work to establish justice in the earth, not justice before God, not justice on the grounds of substitution, but justice on the grounds of persecuting the original sin called whiteness and eradicating whiteness from the universe. Did that make some sense? So whiteness is sin. What you have to do is eradicate, eradicate whiteness because emerging out of whiteness is all of your systemic racism that has brought everybody into bondage. So to deal with the sin of racism, you have to get rid of whiteness. Now, whiteness is not really whiteness. But this goes into what I taught you earlier, that they unreal real and they make unreal to be something that is said to be real. Meaning literal white people aren't just the source, but anyone that would hold to white ideology or Christian values or a biblical worldview. This I taught you two or three years ago. I taught you this two or three years ago. I share with you the uh, fallacy of the left-right narrative when I told you about the fallacy of the left liberal. And I talked to you about the fallacy of the right conservative. And I told you they were two 
two uh, levers on the same pump car taking us in the same direction. I taught you that faulty binary system headed towards a liberal world under fascistic and communist tendencies because it is a managed conflict narrative. So for Marx, the way he tears down is to create categories of conflict. Categories of conflict. To Now that we have gotten feminism, you know, almost expired because feminism tore down the male and the male has been torn down, as you know. Um, now we're dealing with the family, deconstructing the family under critical race theory. And remember, BLM told you plainly, our job is to destroy the nuclear family. We are pro-homosexual, pro-lesbian, pro-trans. I told you this like three years ago. I said we are going to move away from race into transhumanism because racism is an ipso facto universal sin principle in societies that have bought into critical race theory. So everyone that has not learned how to deal with the fallacy of critical race theory as a faulty argument against a group of people are committing the sin of condemning a group versus an individual for personal sin, asserting social sin or communal sin or national sin or ethnic sin. And that's contrary to the word of God. So if a Christian says they believe critical race theory is a legitimate cause and grounds for reparations or punishment of white folks or other, they're going contrary to the word of God because the word of God would tell you to judge men on their individual merits not on the merits of what their family did. Ezekiel made this very plain. The children shall not be punished for the sins of the parents. Right. But that's because in a biblical worldview, we have a healthy uh, commonwealth that can deal with the weaknesses of sinful propensities and bents. We have mercy. We have grace. We have power for transformation. We have the ability to change. We have the ability to look at and call past behaviors wrong, address them, deal with them righteously and move on in the grounds of mercy and grace, which we know is the only mechanism for healing all sin, whether it's whites on whites or blacks on blacks or other because the African culture is having to do it because they sold each other to the white man. They got to work through that now. This is what they're working through trying to overcome this. This is going to be the next level among our African brothers divesting themselves of the critical race theory rhetoric because they do know slavery. But what they have to also know is that that slavery could have not been uh, perpetuated had there not been among their own people, individuals that were facilitating that slavery. Am I making some sense? In other words, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So the gospel is the only thing that liberates sinners for real. So the temptation of buying into critical race theory is for you to become a Pharisee. And to perpetuate a false gospel that is not based upon the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, it actually diminishes it. It actually distorts it. It actually denies it. If Christ is the only savior, then there's no other savior. That makes some sense, right? So what we're dealing with is the battle of two gospels. The gospel of a man-centered 
social justice system that can never, ever reconcile broken sinners and bring them back into unity, harmony and, and, and oneness as Christ has proven that he can do with the nations. And therefore, if we don't battle against that, what can happen, as we already know in our churches, is that while we might get other things straightened out and get normal in the area of economics and maybe normal in the area of uh, pushing back on certain things, if our churches don't recognize that they made a major mistake in opening the door for the Trojan horse of social justice, it's just going to open up again as another can of worms in a different way. I hope that makes some sense. There could be a whole lot more said about it. Who has the mic? Um, um, Go ahead on, Victoria, then Cindy. Okay, um, so my question, um, I have two questions in kind of like a framing for why I'm asking these. And I'm so grateful for the study that you had on Tuesday also because I had like a lot of um, discussion, like exactly like the day after I'm at my work about things similar to that. Um, And the question of like tithing came up. And it was was so interesting because um, we had like a delivery guy that came in and he's a... um, ex-Jehovah's Witness, um, and he's not a believer. He's just, I guess, a practicing atheist. Yeah. And um, the question of tithing came up, um, and I don't really know how it came up, but I'm grateful for the conversation that came forth. Um, He was talking about how um, a lot of the times it feels like uh, there are churches that, like, will ask um, for, like, a lot of money, and then the pastors will be living lavishly. Yes. um, And it's not, like, a true, like, witness um, of how... Like pastors like should be living like you talked about like servanthood, um, and I know there was like a term that you had said like a little bit ago, um, a few sur- uh, a few studies ago about the type of service that you have like where there's like the priest that like kind of just unrolls a scroll and is kind of quiet but like serving. Um, yeah, Ali, sort of- Ali, yeah, Ali Roar, Galley Roar servant, right under the ship, helping the ship get to yeah. where it needs to go without being seen. Yeah, right. and so um, he was asking about that, um, and I was trying to have a discussion with him um, because I was like, I, I, I wanted to engage with him on a personal level um, and not just start to get into like the philosophical like <laughs> debates um, because I didn't really think that would be fruitful, and mm-hmm. so... I know he, he comes in like weekly, and so I'm hoping that conversation will continue. Yes. Um, but I I have a coworker that I work with who's going to seminary, um, and he feels quote unquote called to ministry, this sort of thing. And I work with a good amount of people who feel you know called to ministry or this sort of thing. And um, I don't know how to engage with people who are you know at my age um, who uh, feel as though they want to go into like a job of ministry and that's like their perspective of like something that they would get paid to do. And I don't know um, if that's truly of the Lord or if they're just um, going at it for the wealth because there are churches that have money and that seems more like a job than like something like a spiritual gift that the Lord is calling them to. And so that's one of my questions, like how to engage with like coworkers who are going to seminary and learning these things and, I'm, from what I'm learning from you, like seminaries are a lot of the times really like twisted and aren't truly teaching people, um, like young men, uh, how to be true leaders um, in that servanthood um, and studying of the word. Um, and then also just like how to witness to uh, people who are looking into uh, churches. Like I've had a, a question from a customer about like, what denomination is this church? Because I work at like Cafe Four and so it's right outside right. of Three Crosses. Right, and, sure. And so... 
um, people are asking, like, hey, what denomination is this? And I just think it's a horrible witness <laughs> of the church body in a whole to have, like, so many denominations that it's, like, so um, segregated in that way. Yeah. Um, and so just how to engage with non-believers who are looking in um, or just, like, what's going on. Right. It's going to be very difficult uh, going forward because people are rightfully suspicious. So the first thing I want to say um, is... Um, Uh, Victoria was right to want to rein in the conversation and not get trapped by mere theoretical discourse that ends up often being a bunch of different rabbit trails that people go down, pet peeves and arguments that they already have. She doesn't have time for that. But if she could engage in a much more personal conversation, this is about integration. I love her thinking. That means she's paying attention to the preaching because it should be that way. It should be wanting to have a kind of healthy interaction and dialogue that is really about important issues. Like it is important if he is an ex-Jehovah Witness and therefore has a whole lot of problems with cultic tendencies, aberrant theology, and sinful behavior uh, in addition to it, because that's what you get with Jehovah Witnesses. Because they're self-righteous, fundamentally, they will actually uh, practice sin and then cover it up by their cultic tendencies. And when people escape, they don't want to come back. But it will taint their view of Christianity as well. Same thing happens in Catholicism or any cultic system that abuse shows up at, right? So let's say the inadvertent question of tithing. Tithing is simple. Tithing is not a New Testament mandate. It is not a New Testament mandate. There is nowhere in the New Testament that it is given in the imperative form. It would simply understood in the intertestament period of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as what the Jews were doing. So when Jesus said, you are tithing, mint, ruin, coming, but you are omitting the weightier things of the law, that's not an imperative for us to tithe. That's what they were doing under the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was not over with until Jesus said, tetelestai. That's at the end of every one of your gospels. Tetelestai is the end of the gospel. When he rises again on uh, the first day of the week, you never hear anything in the apostles writings in the book of Acts or in the epistles about an imperative to tithe. Did that make some sense? You read it nowhere. The next time tithing comes up is in the book of Hebrews and the Hebrews is an illustration of what they were doing in the Old Testament with tithes. So the New Testament church that has been healthy for the last couple of hundred years has said this. Tithing is a principle, it's not a mandate. 10% is a principle, it's not a mandate. So for people who, who know that giving is something you want to do, what you learn to do is start with 10% to see if you can give that portion consistently out of what you earn and can you live on the other 80%. If God should prosper you, you can move up from 10% to 20% or 30%, what have you, right? And some people are able to do just that. I am very thankful in our congregation that we have people who give very well and they do it from a free heart, not under compulsion, because you guys, you don't ever hear me talking money. I have never talked money in this church and some people don't like it, but it's just not going to ever happen here because if you want to really divide a church, start talking about money. 
Right. And so, it, you know, we pray, our leadership prays for everybody in our church to be healthy and prosperous. And then 1 Corinthians 9, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 tells us we are to give according as God has given unto us and to do it hilariously from a heart of joy and fullness. And God blesses that attitude, no giving. Okay, Uh, churches that want to engage in tithing, they do it because of the next question I want to answer. And that is the uh, marketing scheme paradigm of church becoming a business. When church is made to be a business, then you've got to make sure you can underwrite that business orientation with enough money coming in. And tithing becomes like the beginning set of mandated principles that people in that larger church congregation has to make sure they're giving so that it can meet the bills. Does that make some sense? But once it's mandated, it's no longer giving. It's legal. It's compulsion. And, and, and so I, I've told us this many. So I'll have a, many of my black brothers and sisters coming to me uh, from these churches. You know what's most pathetic when you meet these little uh, 10 cent churches where you got 25 people and they're mandating tithing. And, and then they'll put goals up on the wall about how much we're, we're trying to raise. You ain't got but 25 people in your church. And, and now you're making them money conscious. You're making them money conscious and not Christ conscious. Now, this is what they did with critical race theory, made them race conscious and not Christ conscious. That's a sin, too. To take Christians off of Christ and put them on money and put them on racism is to abuse their conscience. Now you're actually brainwashing them into what they are being told should be important to them. Am I making some sense? Right. So I always argue, I always say like, show me in your Bible where in the New Testament it teaches tithing as a mandate. They never come back. Now, you know, I've been doing a radio program for like 20 something years. I ask these questions all the time. I want you preachers to call me and tell me where in the Bible, in the New Testament, does it mandate tithing? That's the answer right there. Crickets. Right on, you know, I, I could take the time right now to really boast about all of the challenges I've given preachers over the last 20 years. And only had one preacher call in and we did about a five week debate on Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, he still didn't get it. But um, but preachers don't want to actually have these conversations because they will be proven that they have no biblical basis. But this becomes the challenge to the members in the church because the members are now practicing things that are burdensome to them. Just like Jesus is, you 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 lay heavy burdens upon the people, but you won't bear them yourself. So you get all these Christians really struggling with I can't pay my tithe. I can't pay my tithe. Now, if you can't pay your tithe, fine. But be very sure that your tithe is not operating as a performance-based system to make you right with God because you bring Christ down when you do that. And you'll know it because you'll become self-righteous and I always give my tithe. Whoop-dee-doo. 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 
What about next week when there's a little thing that hit and you can't get your tithe? You're going to come back and tell us, hey, I didn't get my tithe this week. You see how we can create self-righteous grounds all the time? Of course, we want the Lord to bless you. But like Paul said, we're not going to take from you. We're not doing this in deceit and and guile. It is not going to be the central conversation in our church. And we are not going to cajole you by saying, if you give God 20, he'll give you back 60 fold. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. The other element um, that I think you were asking about, I, I wanted to make, did I cover you pretty well so far in that? Was there, did you have another element? That's right. Let me go to that one. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, this can be you can take this in a nuanced way. You can take this in a nuanced way. So seminary used to be purely for the training of men for preaching. Today, because it's been captured by Western capitalism. Bible school now becomes a place where you get educated in business, econ, you get educated in all kind of practical secular vocations. You can get educated in the sciences. All right. And then the assumption is that once you are educated in those fields, you can go into ministry in those fields. I don't particularly care. I wouldn't make an argument about that one way or the other in this sense. Uh, If we believed that the sciences, which are our valid disciplines when properly understood in terms of their origin and design, is a way in which we can serve humanity and, and pay our bills, which what we argue today should happen. You should be able to be in a vocation where it serves humanity and pays your bills. So we, we love our nurses, we love our doctors, we love our teachers, we love our scientists. All my kids are in all those fields. And they do have a missional consciousness about it. So whether you do it in a secular institution or a Christian institution, it doesn't bother me. What would bother me is that in those institutions, the underlying theological framework is contrary to the word of God, contrary to the gospel and and more centered in a kind of prosperity inference. That, that as you do this unto the Lord, may he bless you with wealth. May he bless you with more businesses. May he bless you this way or that way. That becomes the corrupting element in the lure of, of those kind of seminaries. So we will recommend certain seminaries that have that broad swath of different uh, educational vocations, like, like the Master Seminary and a few others that can do the same. But it does not equate that if you go into those ministries to become a nurse or a doctor or what have you, that that is a spiritual calling. You could go in there and find yourself completely immersed in the regulatory capture of the medical industry and lose all sense of being missional about it. Does that make some sense? You have to be extremely careful about that. And a lot of you guys are shaking your head because you know, because you've got family that's trapped by those systems as well. So it can be a lure. The way I would button up that one is by saying this. Whatever the church does by way of um, auxiliary institutions like seminaries and colleges, if it's detrimental to the gospel, it's bad. If at the end of the day, all it makes you is a kind of whitewashed secular businessman, 
you know, with a quasi kind of Christian uh, element to it, it, it's bad. And this is where Christianity has a bad rap in, in, in the West because people identify Christianity with prosperity now in the West. Yeah. With, with owning businesses, with, with you know, with, with the Lord prospering you. And you guys so, know so many businesses that kind of um, put themselves out there as a hybrid of Christian this, Christian that, Christian the other thing. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Now, in my opinion, just be Christian. Don't say nothing about it and do your work. The kingdom will show up in that thing all by itself qualitatively. You don't have to put it on a business card. We are the kingdom of God. Right. But this is me going off. I don't want you to talk like that too, <laughs> at all. At all. Cindy. So kind of asked my question. So, you know, you have these young kids that we say are the ones we've got to pull back in, right? And to that gal, um, the Asian gal that spoke about the wokeness, the marxism, and that. Yes. Um, so what it's so much it's so confusing right to and that like you're mean if you don't like embrace that and so it's confusing for these kids because they know it's wrong and they have parents that are you know speaking the gospel and letting them know what's in the gospel but then they feel like they're mean or they're not accepting or they're not part of their community if they don't do the you know they're they're very they're being hijacked Yes, yes, ma'am. So, you know, I have kids that are graduating from college, and the cool thing is is that they are kind of on their hands and knees asking what their purpose is, where the Lord will use them. Yeah. And so there is a big contradiction in, you know, uh, taking your time, leaning in on your assignment, looking um, for for what your purpose is, and then the, the whole secular world saying that, like, greed, money, had it like, you know, not pay your tax, you know, all the shenanigans and the he, she, and the, you know, you got to accept everybody if they're purple or yellow or whatever. And so the kids are there. It's, it's a very confusing time. And the freedom to be a Christian is being um, attacked. Yes, ma'am. Because, um, you know, we, we live by the word and it's very clear and we want to be on purpose with our assignments, and that's very clear. But then there's this whole government that is telling us that we're really not allowed to be freedom in our Christianity. So we have to, I mean, so my question is, is for these kids, um, and her question was great because it kind of prompted mine because my kids are in the same thing. Like, how do we help them cling to their God-given purpose? Mm-hmm. And to stay steadfast mm-hmm. in not get hijacked by all this, um, you know, that they're mean or they're not accepting or they're racist or they're, you know, labeling them. The, these kind of fake labels that really are just chaos, I believe, to, to, to kind of um, disrupt the family so that, there's, so that we stumble and that we're not. Very much so. Yeah. We're in that same ballpark. I had to do it eight times. Um, this is where if if so the B line is an upline of family where mom and dad are knowledgeable about world affairs. This is where Christians have lost out a lot. Christians are not knowledgeable about geopolitical um, issues and they're not knowledgeable about 
frameworks and worldviews that underpin these geopolitical issues that end up coming into our homes. So, and what I mean by this, and I shouldn't go, I shouldn't go long with this, but let's say every moral thing that you and I know is right and wrong biblically. If it were not politicized, we could live comfortably in the, uh, what we would call pluralistic society that we live in. If you don't politicize homosexuality, it can be taken care of by culture. If you don't politicize um, uh, same-sex marriage, it can be taken care of by society. Once you politicize a thing, now you bring it into people's homes and the strength of the policy of the politicizing of it makes it a conversation. And when it's framed in such a way, as you and I know, to actually militate against a biblical worldview, not only is your biblical worldview now being called upon to actually uh, explain its existence, but your biblical worldview is now being threatened as a system of bigotry and hatred. Right. So the, the answer is going to be because at all times, everywhere in the world, political systems are eventually going to formulate themselves into hostilities against moral and ethical people. At all times, they're going to eventually formulate into that. The Christian or the God-fearing person, the God-fearing person, because this, this is something where we have to understand at the larger level, you got people who in the realm of God-fearing, whatever that may be, hold to moral categories that we agree with. This is where you and I don't want to be fighting with them at fundamental levels. We can discourse with them. We're not fighting with them because if they understand the uh, obtuse fallacy of, of distorting the human uh, makeup at the level of male and female, and it's abhorrent to them, they're on our side. And if they can, in general ways, know that this is kind of organic, it's natural, or even God-given, we're on the same team at that level. So what we have to do is be able to be aware of people that hold the same kind of worldviews we do wherever we are so that we can actually establish a united front around those particular subjects. Now, this should be given to your, your daughter, your son and your daughter, what I'm talking about now, because whenever you're working anywhere, the first thing you do not want to do, because this is a an error that you can make. You don't want to go, are you a Christian? You don't want to do that. Christians are some of the most abominable people on the planet. Your, all your presidents are Christians until they get into the office. Once it's sworn in, their Christianity goes out the door. And so it's a weakness of logic to assert, oh, if you say you're Christian, we're good. It's not true. It's not true. What is your worldview around this thing, that thing, or the other thing? How do you understand it? Now, as I told you earlier in the class, because our country has grown up under Judeo-Christian principles, people inadvertently have an understanding of the wrongness 
of homosexuality or lesbianism or adultery or fornication or stealing or theft. And what you and I want to do is be able to identify those qualities, those innate Judeo-Christian principle qualities in anyone and be able to agree with them. Does that make some sense? That is a pre-evangelical disposition. We are not making them an enemy if they don't say, you know, Jesus is Lord. No, we might be their enemies, but they're not our enemies. It's important for you to know that. Because what if they are one or two steps away from bowing the knee to Christ? Because God has allowed their fallen nature to still have enough imprint of the Imago Dei at the level of morality and ethics for them to be able to resonate with what has been for them a history of Judeo-Christian availability principles in our country. Does that make some sense? It's extremely important for our kids to know that. And, and I, the other thing, because I do it with my kids, I, I hang out with them. I talk with them. You know, if we, whenever we come together, we talk and, and they listen to me. That's remarkable. They still listen. And so um, we're always talking the conditions in the schools, the conditions in the church, the conditions in the job, because I want to know if they're navigating them well. So how are you handling the institution you're in? And they'll talk it through. And I go, OK, that's a pretty good job. So what we don't want to do is be bigotrous people. We don't want to be bigots. You don't want to narrow the pathway to such a degree that it's you two and no more, right? Us four, no more. That is a hyper sort of uh, cultic uh, position when the gospel is meant to facilitate the good of the society. Every believer should be a benefit to a community larger than himself. And that community is expected to not be saved. And you're the blessing in that community by helping them retain all of the positive qualities of their humanness short of their commitment to Christ. It becomes a bridge. Did that make some sense? It's extremely important to do that. And and you're seeing that kind of collaboration happening now after three years of COVID. People are doing it all around the world and I'm loving it as well. Uh, I remember saying this two and a half years ago with some of the guys that are fighting these battles. Some of them are homosexual. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are agnostic. Hey, I want all those cats on my team. I want Douglas Murray on my team. And he's a homosexual, but he thinks very well in terms of worldviews and categories. Okay, and that is not a conflict of interest for me. He would know that I am a Bible believing Christian and do not believe that homosexuality is the right practice. He grew up in the church. So he's already wrestled with the reality that many factors of a biblical worldview he agrees with, but he knows he's out of step with the church in that one. So what I'm sharing with you is what goes on in your family. So you ain't got to look at me all crazy because it goes on in your family, too. So one of the things we have to always do is make sure we put a face on a lot of these political issues. Put a face on it, a face that's familiar to you, because that's what evangelism is about. That's what Christ did. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners. How did he do that? He understood where they were. He understood where they were. And he understood where they could be, but it would require us being in the midst of that, facilitating that at all levels where there's already redemption there. So I'm going to leave that alone. So that I hope that works, Cindy. We'll pray them through. I think we got one more question. Um, Who has the mic? 
Um, you got this lazy sister way back there. I think I, I think I got, I got something to say. That's my girl. She's probably going to have the most profound question out of all of us. And then we're done. I'll need somebody to help me with up board. Remember, next Saturday it's on. Bring your family and friends out. What you got, Marlis? How did you get stirred up? My first question is, are we having Bible study next Friday night? Absolutely. The- okay, just wanted to make sure. Okay. okay. The next thing I want to say is that, I, and I hope you won't feel that I'm being inappropriate. If I am, okay. I hope you won't have to shut me down. It came to my attention that my question last week was um, someone said it was ignorant, disrespectful, and undermining the pastor. That was not my intent at so, all. So, so I want to stop you right there because a couple things are going on. And, and I'll use this as an example for all you guys. So I've been knowing Marlis forever. Very, I don't even know if there's ever been a time that a Marlis has ever offended me. Ever. I'm not easily offended for a lot of reasons. But I know Marlis. Like when you know people, you actually know their heart. So it's really easy to navigate around maybe a complicated phrasing, if that makes any sense. Now, the only reason I will, you know, circumvent her discourse is because my girl likes to go around the bush about five times before establishing. And I know you guys often are tired. But beyond that, me and Marlis are cool. But in this one, I'm going to share something with you. Don't go to somebody for whom somebody else made an assessment about you, about them. Never do that. Don't go to somebody because like that person is only giving you their perception. And 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 also, I'll just say this on a pastoral level. If they didn't frame it in a way of respecting you and respecting me, don't bring it up again. I mean, I'm saying this to all the saints because all that is is perpetuating gossip. Did that make some sense? Right. So now that person could have been uh, just feeling like the way you said it was offensive to me. But that's just their opinion. We, that's going to always be the case. So now we can drop that because you and I are cool. The other thing that I really like about myself, I'm learning to like. This is a blessing when you get old. Can I help you with that? Like an hour after I study, I don't remember anything that we talked about. <laughs> like, like if you offended me, you got to remind me that you offended me. Okay. Well, may I just add a little something? (laughs) I want to say that it is, in general, um, last last week I was terrified on some level when he mentioned about you can leave a marriage because of abuse Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. abandonment. Mm -hmm. It's not because I felt like those were things you just have to tolerate, Mm -hmm. but I was kind of thinking that the pastor was saying that you can get a divorce on those bases. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't heard that before. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to prove all things and we need to, you know, check, compare whatever the pastor says with scripture. Now I admire pastor Gestand amazingly. I think he's 
basically a spiritual genius, and I'm not trying to be flattering, but sometimes I literally sit here and I'm like so amazed that there's a small group of us hearing things that are so amazing from the scripture that very few people around the world get a chance to hear. I feel like we are amazingly privileged. And as much as I admire Pastor, I'm still called to make sure that what he says is biblical. And it, it, I, was, I was kind of feeling concerned about it. And it could be because I did not understand, but I was concerned. And so I, a lot of things went through my mind, concerns and fears. So I asked the question. Now, perhaps for some of you, I did not do it right, and to that extent, I, I asked for forgiveness. But you, you did it just fine, okay. uh, and, and I want to shut it down because right, of time. Thank you. Uh, but I do want to reiterate it. I want to reiterate it because it's healthy. It's a healthy, it's a healthy principle. Um, it's, so I definitely want to make sure this comes home to you, all of you. Um, I've been studying the subject of marriage and divorce for about 40 years. And frequently I come to understand that people don't get marriage right at the theological level, at the historical level, and at the practical sociological level. And I would say, if you read your Bible carefully, you would see that while God lays down these principles that should be ipso facto, God is extremely patient with the level of brokenness that shows up in marriages from the very first marriage all the way through the Bible to the New Testament. What churches do is ride above the text, formulate sort of doctrinal frameworks for what marriage should be, failing to understand the historical development of the principles of marriage to show us that the mandate of marriage is very much like the mandate of the gospel. Without the grace of God, you're going to violate that consistently. And what I mean by that is this. We will say salvation is as simple as believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Would you agree with that? Apart from God's grace, you're not going to even do that. You're not going to do it. It takes grace to believe. And it takes grace to believe not only the first time, but every day of your life. So here's this God of mercy and grace in the person of Christ calling every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue to himself, knowing that they're being called to something that they can't do the first time or the second time. And so he has to supply grace for them to believe the first time and then recovering grace when they don't believe adequately the same day or the next day or the next week or the next month 
to restore them to that position of continually believing in the deficiency with which we don't believe as believers. I'm telling you truth. You don't like it, but I'm telling you the absolute truth. And and what I'm saying is that you see Christians all through the Bible are believers because ultimately they are Christians. Even the Old Testament saints were looking to Christ to come and they were messing up all over the place, weren't they? Um, I'm going to I'm going to just make a I'm just going to walk through just a tad. Um, You know. Abraham and Sarah would have never been able to join the brethren. Some of us know some of us know the brethren churches. Abraham and Sarah would have never been able to be part of many of our reform churches. Why? Because Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to have a child, a proxy wife. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is a polygamist. Isn't he? And God allowed it to happen. God didn't kick him out of the covenant. God didn't upbraid him. God didn't embarrass him. God didn't humiliate him, did he? No, he didn't. Stay with me. God knows that sin has its own consequences in our lives. He doesn't have to always add to the intrinsic consequences of our choice any kind of overt cosmic downpour of wrath. He does not have to do that. As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. I move from Abraham to Jacob. Jacob is a mess. So yes, he loved Rachel, but he got Leah instead. And according to the law, which had not come yet, he was supposed to love Leah equal to Rachel. Torah said that. Torah accommodated the polygamy. Jacob would have never been able to be in the brethren church. And God allowed them to have 12 boys and a daughter, Dinah, as you guys know. And he said, you only have I known out of all the nations of the earth, this group of redeemed sinners who engaged in the cultural practice of polygamy in order to proliferate the seed. And it was in the polygamous, it was in the second woman, Leah, that most of the boys were born. Including Judah, from which my master came. So we get on down the line. And we get over to the monarchy. Which is the second category covenant that comes out of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham and David. What do David do? He just picks up chick after chick. As he emerges to the throne, seven wives, 13 concubines. I taught us this many years ago. This is the, shh, shh, don't talk about that stuff that goes on in our churches as if, you know, God just going to fall off of his seat. Now, what is, what is Abraham doing? What is Jacob doing? What is David doing? Yes, it's weakness and compromise at the faith level, but it's a procuring of family. It's a procuring of family. 
It's not a decimation of family. It's not a desecration of family. It's not a destroying of men. It's not a destroying of I'm telling you the trajectory was multiply and grow. Multiply and grow. See, I live in a culture of desecrate, destroy, diminish, and segregate. I've always lived in that. I've lived in the broken marriages, broken families since I grew up. That's all I've ever known is break the family, break the family, break the family. And theologians and pastors haven't been able to have a sufficient grace-oriented answer for broken families. And then you hear in some of our legalistic churches where this knucklehead man runs off and leave the woman with three kids. She's 25 with three kids and she's got to stay single for the rest of her life because he professes to be a believer. See what I'm getting at? Poor situation. But see, in, I'm not in her situation, neither are you. And so we don't we can we can have the luxury of not feeling the struggle she has to have living in a situation where she may not be able to take care of those kids. And a solution would be a good man coming along that can love her and adopt those kids and raise those kids in a paradigm of the gospel. Because that's what God did with me. I'm an adopted child in the family of God. All right, so stay there. I know I'm preaching, but my point is I've seen how grace works over against legalism over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I go, people have to mature into grace because legalism is a strong glory. And in a society where the, the, the devolution of sin is tearing it all down, I said early on in this ministry with my elders, I'm promoting family. I'm I'm not breaking families up. I'm promoting families. That's what I'm doing. I'm promoting families. But also what I'm not doing is I'm not opening the door for a hard wooden interpretation of marriage that allows the husband or the wife to be a monster. Just because she's your wife doesn't mean you get to beat her. You don't get to abuse her. You don't get to destroy her spirit and attitude. You don't get to do that. Now, see, in cultures where we have close, extended families, we can check the brother when he loses his mind and think he paid for her from the soil. This is my homegrown wife. She's not connected to nobody. She doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother, doesn't have sisters, doesn't have brothers. So I can do with her whatever I want. At that point, we are buying into a godless patriarchal model of slave chattelry. Are we not? That's not the Bible. So you don't get to just wear her out psychologically or her him. Because today women are just as bad at this kind of what I call, you know, Alfred Hitchcock type of uh, psychological torture. Please hear me. It's not marriage. That's not marriage. That's why if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the text says we're all called to peace. We're not called to conflict. God didn't let you get married so y'all could kill each other and then pass that kind of toxic behavior onto your children so that they don't know how to grow up if men love women and women love men. Am I making some sense? So, so you know, if that thing is intolerable, whatever's destroying your peace, you got to step out of that space. You got to step out and let, let, let you, listen, 
I'm just telling you. Just telling you. This is why long ago, uh, as uh, Esther Perel said, uh, men, men got scared of uh, the ability to, of women to have birth control because birth control means that they can exercise some independence. And if marriage was operating at levels that they should, freedom shouldn't be a threat in any relationship. Did that make some sense? Right. But if they're going to be able to get out the marriage or not get into the marriage or have sex without being married because they have a little mechanism called birth controls, what's going on in marriage that they're avoiding marriage but still engaging in what we call the biological what? Imperative. So don't think I'm being mischievous. Don't think I'm being mischievous. We're going to have babies. This goes on all around the world. I was watching a, a documentary on an African tribe, a female African tribe. It's a matriarchal tribe. And this tribe has the women dominant, but not arrogantly. It's just a unique situation. And a lot of the women have children without being officially and formally married because there are fewer men on the island than there are women. So this biological drive to have children occurs, right? And all the mothers are loving on those kids because the kids didn't ask to come here. They're here now. And the mothers are able to live dignified in the sense that they're raising those kids. Now that needs a corrective. You and I would agree with that. That needs a corrective. But the corrective is not coming for a long time if you got seven women to one man. Am I making some sense? Right. And God's not pouring down judgment on them because they're not entering into covenant nuptials before they. This is what goes on in our ghettos. I grew up in the hood. Biological imperatives are happening. This is why we as parents, we start shaking in our boots when our girls turn 12 and 13, don't we? Shaking in our boots because of the biological imperative make you crazy. Right. And then we know just because that boy was able to inseminate you does not mean he's a man able to take care of you and provide for you and nurture you and protect you. We know that. But we're not going to let the world fall apart if that daughter of ours ends up pregnant. We're going to call it what it is. And then we go raise that child under the gospel. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Now I'm telling you how poor countries have done it for thousands of years. Why? Because we're broken people. We're broken people. Legalism is rotten to the core. Adultery. You don't have to let that man go because he committed adultery one time. Heck, you don't have to let him go if he committed adultery a hundred times. I mean, your love is absolutely remarkable if you can put up with him committing adultery a hundred times. We're going to give you some kind of reward. But the Bible's very clear concerning it. It breaks the covenant. Addiction is a horrible thing to live with. I saw what it does firsthand. Addiction will turn you into a monster. It will turn the house into a nightmare. It will create context of physical 
emotional, psychological, rhetorical abuse that's unsustainable. Well, you just should stay there and take it. I hope my silence is saying something. Right? And then when we get to abandonment, heck, if he pulls out and disappears or she pulls out and disappears, that is the most cowardly thing that could ever occur. What you're going to do, just sit there in suspended animation for the next 25 years because some fool disappeared on you? He ghosted on you. And you got to raise those kids. You don't have to believe a thing that I just said to you guys. You don't have to believe one thing I just said to you. This is the stuff I've had to work through for 20, 26 years at this church. And we haven't had a scandal here to boot from the beginning. We've had these kind of fallacies occur. Our young women have gotten pregnant, but it's not a plague. Am I making some sense? God's been very good to us, been very gracious to us. And our daughters, they don't feel like they can't ever come back to this church when they make that mistake again because they know what grace is. All manner of sin will be forgiven the sons of men except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How broad God's love is for broken sinners. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the saints. Thank you for an opportunity for us to uh, meditate on these things. Um, You have told us uh, these things are written that we sin not. And we believe you, O God. And were it so. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We're so thankful for that second clause. So thankful, Lord. We're asking that you purify your body, strengthen her, strengthen, give us the wisdom to be able to deal with Humpty Dumpty. That brokenness is going to require love and patience and gentleness and fragility of levels that don't look good externally. We know it. But uh, if that is the level of redemption and restoration and reconciliation you are calling us to in order for men and women and children to be brought into the sphere of the grace of God, help us to walk humbly enough to know that you are able to manage it with the Old Testament saints and you are able to manage it with us. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.